Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. U.S.-China relations seem locked into a collision course that has already fomented a trade war, seems likely to become a new Cold War, and could possibly result in military conflict. Mutual distrust clouds the relationship on both sides. In his new book, Middle Class Shanghai, Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement, Brookings expert Chung Li, who directs the John L. Thornton China Center at Brookings, argues that American policymakers should not overlook the dynamism and diversity in present-day China, exemplified by the city of Shanghai and its expansive and cosmopolitan middle-class culture. Moreover, Lee argues, Washington should neither underestimate the role or the strength of the Chinese middle class, nor alienate this force with policies that push it toward nationalism to the detriment of both countries and the global community. On this episode, Brookings Institution Press Director Bill Finan talks with Lee about his book, a conversation in which Lee takes us from his growing up in Shanghai during the Red Terror or the Cultural Revolution to a Chinese middle class today that enjoys the markers of a middle class lifestyle, and even to the avant-garde art scene in that city. Also on this episode, senior fellow John MacArthur, director of the Center for Sustainable Development, explains the 17 Rooms Initiative, an experiment launched by Brookings and the Rockefeller Foundation to stimulate new forms of discussion and action for the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. First up, here's John MacArthur with a new Sustainable Development Spotlight on 17 Rooms. Hi, I'm John MacArthur, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Brookings, here with the Sustainable Development Spotlight, a regular segment to highlight the work from the Center. Today, I'm going to talk about 17 Rooms, a new approach to problem-solving and convening we've been working on over the past few years in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, focused on spring action for the world's 17 sustainable development goals. Why 17 Rooms? Well, have you ever wondered how to translate the big, audacious, long-term global challenge of the UN Sustainable Development Goals into practical conversations and actions within your own community? This is exactly what the 17 Rooms Initiative is trying to do. The 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, were agreed by all countries in 2015 to chart a better course for the world's economic, social, and environmental trajectories, anchored in a set of targets for 2030. COVID-19 has only underscored one of the SDGs' central themes. The underlying problems are both interconnected and urgent. The world needs to transition to a new path. Part of the transition will be generated through the long, hard, and often formal work of science, policymaking, and practice. But part of it will also come from getting disparate groups of people together in new and creative ways for informal conversations that can spark new collaborations and new types of answers. This is where 17 Rooms comes in. So what exactly is 17 Rooms? Well, in practical terms, it consists of people from different SDG specialist communities, each meeting in their own rooms or working groups, one for each of the 17 goals. Think of a convention center with all the SDG constituencies gathering in the plenary hall before heading to their own goal-specific breakout rooms, and then reconvening to explore how their ideas might interconnect. Within any specific 17 rooms process, Each room is tasked with a common question. 
what are one to three cooperative actions they can take over the subsequent 12 to 18 months? A time horizon beyond the pressures of today, but not so far off as to be impractical. Emerging ideas are then shared across rooms to spot opportunities for collaboration. In a February report on 17 Rooms, a new approach to spring action for the Sustainable Development Goals, we described three design principles that help define the 17 Rooms approach. First, all SDGs get a seat at the table. The insights, participants, and priorities of all goals are valued equally across all rooms. Second, take a next step, not the perfect step. Participants focus and collaborate on actions that are big enough to matter, but small enough to get done. And third, focus on conversations, not presentations. Participants are asked to check their institutional agendas at the door and focus on what's best for an issue, not any individual organization. We found that these three principles help people advance concrete actions, form novel insights, and foster pragmatic communities to advance the SDGs. A quick history of 17 rooms. The first ever experiment was convened in September 2018 on the eve of the UN General Assembly in New York. But in the years since then, the initiative has evolved into a two-pronged effort. One prong is an annual global flagship process focused on international-scale policy challenges. The other prong is for bottom-up community-level efforts. We call it 17 Rooms X where local actors are taking the methods into their own hands to stimulate local cooperation for the SDGs. The highly curated flagship effort forms the tip of the arrow in driving the evolution of 17 Rooms methodologies so far. In 2020, the pandemic sent everything virtual, 17 Zooms, if you will. You can read the flagship's individual room documents, plus the overall insights report in our Center for Sustainable Development website. Meanwhile, 17 Rooms X has been driven by local actors, initially in countries like Mexico, Spain, the United States, and Canada, but now also expanding to prospective efforts in places like Iceland and countries across Latin America and the Caribbean. We've recently launched a 17 Rooms X community of practice with dozens of organizations joining to share insights on how 17 Rooms can help tackle local economic, social, and environmental problems on the ground. Many universities, cities, civil society organizations, and even businesses are looking to roll out their own 17 Rooms effort soon. This is exactly our ambition, to help bring the SDGs into communities' own hands, to promote problem-solving in parallel and in concert across all the diverse constituencies that are crucial to tackling the challenges of sustainable development, and to promote practical next steps that help people keep driving forward even when the headwinds feel strong. If you'd like to learn more about the 17 Rooms Community of Practice or the initiative overall, please drop us a line at 17rooms17roms at brookings.edu. Thanks. more about 17 Rooms and the Center for Sustainable Development on our website, brookings.edu. And now, here's Bill Finan with Chung Lee, author of Middle Class Shanghai. Fred, thank you, and Chung, glad to be able to talk to you again about your new book. Thank you for having me. 
The new book, Middle Class Shanghai, is an engrossing and detailed yet wide-angled immersion in a new China through the lens of Shanghai. Along the way, you help us understand the seismic socioeconomic jolt that has transformed the country and also, and I think this is extremely important for this geopolitical moment, also help us understand why what seems to be a new consensus that China and America are doomed to competition, possibly military, doesn't have to be the case. It's a big book. There's a lot in here that we can't even begin to explore in this short discussion. It's a really incredibly rich book, too. I'm really happy to be publishing this. But there's so much central themes I'd like to pull out to ask you about today. First, I want to ask you about Shanghai. What is this city and why is it so important to understanding the new China? Well, Bill, I'm glad that you start with the essential question, why Shanghai? There are four main reasons that I have focused on Shanghai. First, understanding Shanghai is vital to understanding modern China. There's a famous Chinese saying, actually, I think it's quite revealing. It goes like this, to learn about 2,000-year Chinese history, one should visit Xi'an. To understand the 500-year Middle Kingdom, one has to see Beijing. To grasp the past 100 years of changes in China, one must look at Shanghai. Mm. Now, a distinguished American historian of Asia, Rose Murphy, wrote a book in 1953, I believe, the title is Shanghai, Key to Modern China. That was first reason. The secondly, Shanghai is the cradle of both the middle class and the foreign educated returnees. Those Chinese went abroad and studied and returned to China. The two groups I have examined. Now, about 10 years ago, 40% of the Chinese middle class live in Shanghai and the three other major cities, Beijing, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou. 25% of foreign educated returnees work in Shanghai. Thirdly, I'm intrigued with the multiple identity of Shanghai, namely local, national, and the cosmopolitan identities. They are all quite dynamic, mutually reinforcing each other, while also retaining independent value within particular context. Shanghai's cultural dynamics stress neither culture clash or culture convergence, but rather cultural coexistence and the culture diversity. And fourthly and finally, Shanghai is currently the pace setting in China's new search for global power. And its role will shape how China will act and how the outside world will respond to the uh, the emergence of global China. But there, I want to address my argument that the middle-class Shanghai actually reveals China's unsettled future because Shanghai embodies what I call two tales of a city. Before we come to those two tales, I would like to ask you a tale about yourself. You grew up in Shanghai. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes, there's a personal reason. I was born and raised in Shanghai. In that city, I experienced both the dark era of red terror during the Cultural Revolution as a young boy, and also the happier and the more promising time of Deng Xiaoping's economic reform and opening up in the early 1980s as a college student. In the middle 1990s, I was privileged to live in Shanghai for two years as a research fellow with the support of the U.S.-based Institute of Current World Affairs, uh, the same institute that uh, sponsored supported Doak Burnett, really the season that China hand went to uh, go to China 
to observe communist takeover in 1949. During my two years in the middle 1990s, I wrote about my Ripovenko-like experience in the city. Now, Ernest Hemingway once wrote that if you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then whenever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you. For me, despite the horrible memories of suffering and the torture for me and for my family during the Cultural Revolution, Shanghai, known in some quarters as the Paris of the East, remains close to my heart. Your book's title is Middle Class Shanghai, but for many, the concept of a China that has a middle class is going to be difficult to grasp, both those in the larger population and also within academia, too, because it's a contested topic. So I want to ask you to give us some definitions. What do you mean by middle class and how is Shanghai middle class? Excellent question, Bill. Now, this book, Middle Class Shanghai, is not my first book on the subject, but actually the third book. In the middle 1990s, I wrote a book manuscript on the emergence of the Chinese middle class. But the book manuscript was rejected one after another by publishers, a total of six or seven. The reason was largely the same. Reviewers did not agree with the overarching concept of the Chinese middle class. They believed that the concept of middle class should involve civil society and the core middle class values. Also, some reviewers commented that China consisted of the only rich and corrupt official class and the vast number of poor people with no such things called Chinese middle class in between. Now, eventually, I changed the book title to Rediscovering China, Dynamics and the Deliverance of Reforms, and deleted most of the explicit references to the middle class. This book turned out to be a bestseller, widely used as a textbook in colleges in North America. My second book on the Chinese middle class was an edited volume, China's Emerging Middle Class, published by the Brookings Press in 2010, when the Western business community was fascinated about the economic implications of the rise of the Chinese middle class. At that time, over 20% of Chinese population could be considered as the middle class. They concentrated in Shanghai and other major cities, enjoy a middle-class lifestyle with private property, personal automobiles, improved health care, accumulation of financial assets, and ability to afford overseas travel and foreign education for their children. They live like middle-class, consumer like middle-class, feel like middle-class, and they were middle-class. They had already transformed China's socioeconomic structure and also the world economy. But interestingly enough, academic communities and the policy circles in the United States and in the West were still hesitant to accept that concept, that the 2010 editor book was one of the very few English books on the subject. Now, I also want to say that the pervasive view in Washington today about the middle class development in China, however, is no longer one of hope for positive change, for peace and prosperity in the world or mutual benefit for both countries, but rather one of fear that this development benefits only China and may undermine American supremacy and security. Now, to your question about the definition of the middle class, the middle class is inherently flexible concept everywhere in the world, I believe. My study, like some other scholars in China and elsewhere, 
combines factors such as income, wealth, occupation, education, and the social status, the combination of factors to define the socioeconomic group. Earlier, I mentioned that for many Western scholars, the concept of middle class should involve civil society and the core middle class values. Right. I actually agree with this conceptual notion. Despite the fact that the middle class is a diverse lot in China, I believe they more or less share the following core middle class values and attitudes. Let me just briefly mention these core values. Appreciate the middle class lifestyle, protect the private property rights, support the policies that promote education, advocate for measures that safeguard the environment, care deeply about food and the drug safety, resent the government's great fire war online, middle class are very critical about this kind of media censorship, and demand the government accountability and the transparency and look favorably towards economic globalization because China benefits from economic globalization. And finally, hold the pride for China's rise on the world stage. Now, as for the status of Shanghai middle class, according to 2018 study, over 5 million households in Shanghai share this lifestyle and could be considered middle class families. They constitute 91% of the total registered household of the city. Now, certainly not included migrant workers and their families that could not afford even decent central housing in the city. Talking about the housing or property, according to a 2019 report by the People's Bank of China, almost all registered families in Shanghai own residential property. The average value of household assets among Shanghai residents was 1.2 million US dollars. So that tells you really very impressive growth, but also some tensions mm-hmm. between have and have not. But that's Shanghai. That's certainly the credit yeah. of the Chinese middle class. Yeah. What's interesting to me in your description is that it sounds like a middle class. It acts like a middle class. It looks like a middle class. I think it is a middle class. It would seem to be defined that way. You outline two scenarios for the future of China in which the middle class plays a pivotal role. Can you briefly outline those two scenarios? Well, in the first scenario, which is more pessimistic, China becomes a superpower with its continuing economic growth and military modernization. China's middle class has grown to an unprecedented size, and this population's strongly nationalistic views come to guide almost all state affairs. Tension between China and the United States have become increasingly acute resulting from the demand of hundreds of millions of middle-class consumers in China, global resource scarcity, environmental degradation, and the global concern about the other negative impact from the country's rapid industrialization and urbanization. I don't want to go to the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, U.S. media cover a lot about these challenges or problems. To a great extent, the Chinese middle-class can serve as an active and influential player in the country's pursuit of the state capitalism and the industrial policies overseas, including in the Build and Road Initiative. Now, in this scenario, the pessimistic scenario, a sentient China, still cognizant of the so-called century of humiliation, it endure at the hands of the Western imperialists, may easily choose to disregard international norms, disrupt global institutions, and even consider aggressive 
expansionism in the East and the Southeast Asia, along with other parts of the region. Now, that's a negative, pessimistic scenario. In the second, the more optimistic scenario, China's middle class embraces more cosmopolitan values, having forged close economic and cultural bonds with countries in the West, especially the United States, as many of them study or their children study in the U.S. The growing consumption of Chinese middle class helped reduce the U.S.-China trade imbalance, easing economic tensions, and the Chinese middle class lifestyle comes to mirror that of developed countries. The Chinese middle class consists of a large number of private entrepreneurs and private sector employees. So again, they share similar values. Now, in most nations, there is an important link and an ultimate need for close ties between economic development and the regime efficiency to mediate interest. So China's middle class may help create and strengthen these ties by pushing for better governments in domestic affairs. Now, it may not happen at the moment, but sooner or later it will happen, according to some scholars. I actually belong to that group. Now, this group will also demand that China acts as a responsible stakeholders on the foreign policy front, building more constructive relations with the United States and the international community at large. So these are the two scenarios. What's the likelihood that nationalism, which has been a grave concern, especially in the West, nationalism in China, what is the likelihood that it could derail the second, more optimistic scenario? Well, that's a real danger, Bill. The action between Beijing and Washington may lead in that direction, if not carefully managed or corrected at the moment. Now, Beijing increasingly assertive conduct, both in the region, on the world stage, including the pressure campaign against Taiwan, economic cohesion against Australia and other European countries, and the retaliatory sanctions targeting individuals in the institutions in North America and Europe has caused serious concern in the U.S. and U.S. allies. Now, from a Chinese perspective, many of the Biden administration's recent moves indicate that a new anti-China Cold War is imminent. These actions include restructuring global industrial and supply chains, initiate the so-called chip alliance or semiconductor industry alliance, join like-minded countries to boycott Chinese products and China-sponsored events because of human rights issues, and also urging EU countries to reconsider the EU-China Comprehensive Agreement investment, and finally hosting the Democracy Summit at the White House. Now, these Chinese think that it's a coalition led by U.S. against China to curb China's rise. Now, this naturally lead to some of the nationalist sentiment and also even anti-American sentiment. Now, when you look from Chinese perspective, Chinese government certainly take advantage of that. Actually, they use that kind of things to try to unite the country. So nationalism, anti-American sentiment is on the rise. Now, this Western policy move certainly provides kind of ammunition for the Chinese Communist Party. I can give the list. The U.S. claims that Beijing is weaponizing Chinese students enrolled in U.S. universities, targeted Chinese and Chinese-American scientists, consider termination of U.S.-China education exchanges, employ phrases like a Chinese virus or gong flu, provoking xenophobia and anti-Asian hate crime, and also restricting members of the Chinese Communist Party and their families, about 300 million people, 
from visiting United States. Now, it's important to see from Chinese perspective when you see this kind of policy move that explain the growing nationalist sentiment. I'm not defending Chinese nationalism, but there's a reason from their perspective. There's some external causes. Of course, the reality is far more complicated, but that's the explanation. I want to move to another topic, and we'll come back to the U.S. and Chinese relations in a moment. A section of your book is devoted to the Shanghai art scene. That's a first for a book like this. Well, it's a first to have a book about Shanghai and looking at the middle class, but to have this in a part of a political discussion. And it's an absolutely absorbing discussion, too, of the Shanghai art scene. Why did you include it? Well, I believe we need to take a holistic view of China if we want to discuss the dynamic and the multi-layered developments happening within China, within Shanghai. So I actually started looking at Shanghai's avant-garde artists, a special cluster of middle class, almost 20 years ago, because by definition, avant-garde art is ahead of our time, Mm -hmm. first directed at core audience, and then gradually absorbed by other people and the society at large. Now, when I started this research about 20 years ago, it surprised me early on to see the strong critical views of this artist's work, not just singling out the Chinese Communist Party, but also pointed to globalization and its side effects, economic and demographical disparities, environment disasters and the degradations caused by the rapid globalization and industrialization in China, and the single-minded profit-seeking Western hypocrisies and arrogance of Western hegemonic thinking. These are all the targets. Now, I have come to see that the general public absorbing three dominant critical perspectives, first developed by avant-garde artists, then spread in the society. One is a resentment of the Chinese Communist Party's authority. The number two is a resentment of a certain super rich entrepreneurs, Chinese entrepreneurs. And the thirdly, a resentment of the United States. Each of these dominant powers, from their perspective, gets criticized and challenged in some contexts, while also being celebrated or supported in other contexts. This is a very, very intriguing development. Mm-hmm. And many of those Reflections on China's post-colonial status, particularly Shanghai's post-colonial legacy, and also its globalized present and its complex societal negotiations first appear in avant-garde artists' work. So this is the reason I study avant-garde. It's really very revealing for me. And their discourse usually occur earlier years or even a couple of decades earlier than general public, whether it be critical of the Chinese Communist Party or critical of the West or critical of the rich entrepreneurs. But it's very, very interesting to see how that unfold. It's also interesting to, I think, those who are just casual observers of China to have this entry point into how, I'm going to use this word, I don't mean in the condescending sense, how sophisticated Chinese <laughs> aesthetic life is. I mean, the aesthetic is now too. It's not those of us just see the Mao uniforms and the propaganda art from a long time ago. This is very new, cutting edge and innovative work. And what's also interesting to me too, is like the state has allowed this space for this to happen too. James Fellows, you know, our friend, previously worked for Atlantic. He visited China, I think in 1988 or 89. He wrote an article published, I think in Atlantic. The title is Shanghai Surprise. 
Mm. What surprised me is not about change, but no change by the middle or later 80s. So all the changes occurred largely after 1990, when particularly Deng Xiaoping spent some time in Shanghai and the economic reform accelerated.、Oh. So that's the fascinating change. So again, early on, I mentioned Shanghai is very much two tails of a city. In my view, Shanghai was, is, and will be paradoxical. Now, in history, Shanghai is the most westernized Chinese city, but it's also birthplace of the CCP and the center of Maoist radicalism in the Cultural Revolution. I witnessed this kind of radicalism; it's、mm-hmm. really horrifying. Now, presently, Shanghai is a frontier city of market reforms, opening up, and cosmopolitanism. But it's also a head of dragon. The Chinese term is China's industrial policy and state capitalism. Now, looking at the future, Shanghai, as many Chinese claim, is a vanguard of the middle class, worldly voices, views, and values. I mentioned some of these things early on, including avant-garde artist community. But also, it's a showcase. Of China's growing state-led and aggressive global outreach. So、mm-hmm. my point here is that we should place Shanghai's future and China's future in an ever-changing domestic and international context. It's not predetermined, not stagnant, certainly not fixed. The central concern in your book, and one you write about at the very beginning, in fact. And also, that overhangs nearly all the discussion is the state of U.S.-China relations, which we've touched on throughout this discussion. How would you summarize the relationship at this time? Well, United States and China now appear to be locked coalition course that has already caused a trade war, seems likely to produce a new cold war, and if not wisely and carefully managed, could even result in a dangerous military conflict. The current deterioration in the bilateral relationship, as the book argues, is the accumulation of years of disputes, disillusionment, disappointment, and distrust between the two countries. The U.S. actions and the resulting action from China, or revise, or reverse, as I discussed earlier, have increasingly driven the world into two trade and investment systems, two IT and internet systems. Potentially two financial and the currency system, and the two political and the military blocks. If that's the case, it's a cold war. Now, Dr. Kissinger recently pointed out that the United States and China are almost equally powerful, and the endless competition may lead to destructive confrontation. Either side cannot win a total war or destroy the other. This will be a war without winner. And therefore, it should never be fought. Both countries need to find an entirely new way to coexist by reshaping U.S.-China engagement. This is the subtitle of my book: "Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement." My book is a humble effort to provide a different angle based on the cultural front, or from the perspective of people-to-people relations. The book argues that、uh, we should not underestimate. The profound impact of cultural exchanges and enduring friendship between two peoples, between peoples in China and the United States, even at a time when the U.S.-China relationship has drastically deteriorated. Now, this is evident in the Chinese people's admiration of Kobe Bryant and the widespread mourning throughout the country that followed his tragic passing. 
on January 27, 2020, the day after the helicopter crash that killed Ryan, there were more than 1 billion web searches for Ryan's name and the clash on Weibo, China's Twitter. More than double the number of a search for coronavirus. This is astonishing given that China was really in the peak of the deadly pandemic. Now, these kinds of cultural and educational exchanges between two countries with profoundly different ideology and the political systems can promote mutual understanding, inspire fair competition, diffuse global norms, and therefore reduce the likelihood of destructive confrontation. Washington should neither underestimate uh, the role and the strength of Chinese middle class, nor alienate this force with policies that push it towards nationalism to the detrimental of both countries and the global community. This is the central thesis of the book. And you've actually answered the last question I wanted to ask you is, what can be done to help Washington refocus and reframe the narrative it is producing about China as a country, China as a country and China on the international stage by what you just, what you just well, I can further here. elaborate if you want. Sure, yeah. yes. Well, if Washington makes recurrent mistake assessing presently China, it is perceiving the world's most populous and rapidly changing country in a monolithic terms. When considering China's current status and the future trajectory, some American policymakers and opinion leaders fail to draw a distinction between China's ruling elite and the much broader Chinese society. As my book documents, China has become increasingly pluralistic with many new social and political players, particularly from the middle class, making reductive generalizations about China more problematic than ever before. Now, if America disengage with Chinese society, especially with its dynamic middle class, what leverage and influence can the U.S. expect to have on China's future evolution? Washington's failure to distinguish among various perspectives of the leadership of Chinese Communist Party, of Chinese society, of China's middle class, will broadly risk undermining U.S. policy effectiveness on China. Zhang, thank you for coming by to talk about your new book, Middle Class Shanghai, Rethinking U.S.-China Engagement. Okay, thank you. You can buy Middle Class Shanghai, Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement by Chung Li wherever you like to buy books, including from your local bookstore. A team of amazing colleagues helps make the Brookings Cafeteria possible. My thanks to audio engineer Gaston Reberedo, to Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, to my communications colleagues Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and finally to Camila Ramirez and Andrea Risotto for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the current and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. 
Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.